0: Lord, thank you again for this opportunity to worship you, to learn about you. I pray that everything I say tonight, Lord, would not be my words. They would be yours. I pray that you would fill my mouth with everything that you want everyone in this room to hear. I pray that nothing I say would be out of pride or would be in vain, but it would all be truth. It would be truth that you want to speak to our heart and open our hearts to receive you Pray that your spirit would dwell in here tonight, that we would be in awe of you and who you are and your love for us. And we pray all all these things in your precious name. Amen. All right. Um, We've been in our series No Matter What, and we've been studying different people in the Bible how they have followed God's calling in their life no matter what. So we're going to continue in that series, and we're going to be looking at Amos. Um, I'm going to go ahead and kind of brief you. Amos is short. It's nine chapters. We're going to very lightly go over the whole thing, so I'm not going to keep you for like an hour and a half, I promise. Um, but we are going to move quickly, so if you're taking notes, buckle up, get ready. Um I want us to see first... Well, I want us to keep this in mind. So there's two things we should notice. First being, yes, we do need to see Amos, his life, his Mm -hmm. prophecy. It was not easy. No prophet in the Bible had an easy journey or an easy ministry. And Amos was no exception. But the most important thing we need to see is the character of God. Because I think we have a tendency, when we hear messages like this, when we read this, to look at the person... And this book was not intended to be written so that we would see the people. It was so that we would see the character of God through the people. Okay? So let's please try to keep that as our focus. And as we start off, like I said, no prophet had an easy journey. But many of the prophets came from priesthood or came were, were raised... Um, In ministry Some of them it doesn't specifically say that But it tells what family line they came from Which would have been important to know um, To be able to tell somebody's Social class and economic class That they came from And then actually Obadiah All we know about him is that his name is Obadiah But this specifically The first thing it tells us Is the words of Amos Who were among the shepherds of Tekoa That's chapter 1 verse 1 Okay So he's not a prophet is what this saying. He's a shepherd. And in those days, shepherd was the lowest of the low. Okay, shepherds, everybody saw shepherds as dirty, and they were a shepherd because they couldn't do anything else. That's the first thing it tells us. And actually, in chapter 7, verse 14, Amos is talking to Amaziah, the high priest, and he says, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Okay, So he's not a prophet, and he doesn't see himself as a prophet. And so when we're following God's calling on our life, no excuse is acceptable. I don't want us to get that in our head. But the excuse of I'm not qualified is probably the least acceptable because you may not be qualified, but God is qualified. Okay, And you're not going to do work without him. He does what he wants to do through you, so it doesn't matter if you're qualified or not. That's irrelevant. Alright? We need to remember that. We need to keep that in mind. And so I want us to watch, or I want us to see how he starts off. So he comes to Israel. He's not from Israel. Nobody knows who he is, okay? And he starts proclaiming judgment on Israel's neighbors and enemies. Alright? So he starts off and he's talking about Damascus. And he says in verse 3. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. All right, so what that means is in those days when the, the farmers had their grain and they were ready to store up their grain, they would take these huge, they were pretty much plows, okay, and they were called threshing sledges and they were made of iron. So they were very, very heavy, very, very large and they would harness them to the oxen and then they would pile up their grain, and they would have the oxen drag it over the grain, and it would pack the grain so tight that it would separate the grain from its shell or from its hole, okay? And so essentially what he's saying is you're beating people into the ground like they're nothing but grain. So you will receive punishment for that. And then we go next, and he's talking to um, Gaza, which is where the Philistines were. And he says, this is verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Eden. Edom, I'm sorry. To Edom. Alright, so what they're doing here is pretty simple. They're taking a people, enslaving them, and then just giving them off. They're treating them like they're objects pretty much. Alright, so That was their sin. And then Tyre, as we can see in verse 9, is pretty much the same thing. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So they did the same thing as the Philistines did, but it was a little bit worse because they were actually in covenant with the people that they delivered to Edom. And most likely this is talking about Israel in 1 Kings 5.12. Um, Tyre and Israel Entered into a covenant of brotherhood And so they betrayed that By taking people of Israel And just selling them off to eat them Like they were objects Alright And so then we get to the Ammonites And he says, this is verse 11 For three transgressions, I'm sorry Verse 13 For three transgressions of the Ammonites And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. Okay, so the Ammonites were, they didn't actually have a secure land, secure borders. They were between Syria in the north and Moab in the south. And so they were constantly trying to grow and secure their borders. And they were so ruthless and merciless in this pursuit that they would not even spare pregnant women. That's how awful they were. So they will be punished for that. And then we see, actually beginning in chapter two, and they're talking to Moab. For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So back then, when you captured a nation or a people, the most disgraceful thing you could do or the thing to show them the most disgrace was to burn their king, to kill and burn their king. That's what they're doing. So they're all doing this stuff to each other. They're all around each other. They could be helping each other out, being civil with each other, and they're just going after each other all the time. Okay? And so at this point, Israel's loving this. They don't know who this Amos guy is, but they are loving it because he's come in and he's roasting everybody they don't like. So they're like, yes, Amos, go ahead, do your thing. But then he starts in on them, and it's not as fun anymore. He says, chapter 2, verse 4, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Okay, so no, you're not doing all of this uncivilized stuff that all these other nations have done. But actually, what you've done is worse because you've rejected the Lord himself. So you're sitting back telling all these people how bad they are, they need to be judged, all this. You're worse. And that's just a little section. And then he comes to Israel, and this section is extremely long. And look at what he says. This is pretty vivid. This is verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel, and for four... I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same woman so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So here what they're doing is very specific. They're doing mainly two things. They are taking advantage of and neglecting the poor, and they're partaking of sexual immorality. And that kind of might sound random a little bit, but it's not. Because First 1 James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what he tells them is that you know, you do all these things. You lay down beside every altar. You go in the house of God and drink wine and are merry, but all the while you do all of these pagan things and you neglect the people right on your doorstep that need your help. And you not only neglect them, you take advantage of them. The wine that you're drinking is wine that they gave in pledge. So what he's saying is your religion, as you call it, is is false, it's nothing. And so, at this point, they had believed that because they were God's children, they were good. They were safe. Yeah, they're doing all the stuff that everybody else is doing, but they're God's children. What could happen to them? And we get in chapter 3, and look at what he says, starting in verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So what he says is, um, no, you're not going to escape judgment. Actually, it's going to be worse for you because I expect pagans to do pagan things. I don't expect my children to do pagan things. So they're going to be judged, but you're going to be judged worse. And he keeps going. He asks these series of questions. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And he asks three or four more of these questions like this. And essentially, he's talking to them like they're a child. Like, okay, you know, a bird doesn't fall into a snare on the earth, this is verse 5, if there's not a trap for it. So he's talking to them like a child. You sinned, there's punishment for sin, so you're being punished. He's trying to make this clear, because they obviously don't get it. And so... He continues to go, and that's pretty much all of chapter 3. And so we get to chapter 4. This is one of my favorite parts, y'all. My second favorite part of this whole book. This is how it goes. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So he's talking to the women about how they're not innocent either. They've done the same things. He says, you cows of Bashan, Okay, and I'm probably not saying that right, that's okay. But that area was an area of very rich farmland just northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was known far and wide for having the fattest, healthiest cows. So what he's saying here, as if he's not already made them mad enough, is okay, heifers, listen, Uh, pay attention, all right? And they are, I can just see the looks on their faces. They're turning like a lobster red. They're so angry. He goes down to verse 4. He says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bethel and Gilgal were large cities in Israel, and they were huge pagan hubs. I mean, that was where you went if you wanted to pretty much sin day and night 24-7. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is loving and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So he says, I see you sacrifice. I see you tithe. You give thanksgiving. You do everything like you're supposed to do. And meanwhile, behind my back, like I can't see everything, you're going and doing all these things. And I reject it all. It's fake. I don't care if you do all of that stuff if your heart's not in the right place. And that's a reoccurring theme throughout this. And so he gets to verse 6, and he starts off talking to them, and he talks about how, we're not going to read most of that, but he talks about how he's tried to get them to come back to him. He's tried over and over and over again. He's even made bad things happen to them. Um, He sent famine Or he sent drought He's kept rain from them for three months So there was no harvest He sent locusts to create a famine He had Egypt come down and kill them And he actually says Verse 11 I overthrew some of you As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning You, You did not return to me So he says some of you Nothing really happened You just died I just killed you And I was hoping that would make you come back to me and they don't. They just keep doing what they want to do. And so he's not fooled by anything that they're doing. But look at the shift in chapter five. Look at what he says. Hear this word that I take up over that I take up over you in lamentation O house of Israel, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. He keeps going. Starting in verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. And he actually says that three more times through verse 17. Seek me and live. What he's doing here is he's pleading out to them, Just come back. I love you. Come back. You don't have to live this way. I've delivered you time and time again. I'll deliver you once more. Come back. He has every right to honestly just obliterate them. But he says, I love you, come back. He calls them. Verse 2, he says, Follow no to eyes is the virgin Israel. By calling them the virgin Israel, he's reaffirming their worth to him. They are still special to him and they matter, and he sees them as his. But we get to verse 18, and it kind of changes the demeanor again. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. So it kind of seems like we're jumping around a lot, but he's really just taking the same two or three ideas, and he's saying them over and over and over again. He wants it to get in their head. These people who have been calling, yes, judge the other nations, Go get them. They're doing all this stuff to us. They're sinful people. We're your children. Walk them out. And he says, um, No, it's going to be bad for you too. You don't actually want that. You might want to kind of chill out with that, because you're getting you're getting judgment too. I'm going to hold you responsible for your sin as well. Then we get to chapter six. It's kind of the same thing. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So these people we see here are actually sitting back. They're living a lavish lifestyle. Again, they've got the needy right outside their door. They could be going out and helping people, and they're just sitting back waiting for God to come back and wipe everybody else out. And he says in verse 7, Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So... Again, he's reminding them, y'all got to wake up. It's coming. Y'all got to wake up. You're sitting around not doing anything. You're still living an unhealthy, sinful lifestyle. Judgment's coming. You need to wake up. And he keeps trying to get them to come back. He keeps showing them throughout the rest of this chapter, it's going to be bad. Verse 9. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, Who is in the innermost part of the house? Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. So they're going to be so afraid of God in that day, they won't even say his name. Because they'll be afraid that if they say his name, he's coming after them too. That's how bad it's going to be. And so through these verses, I'm sorry. these first six chapters what we see is spoken oracles that Amos is telling the people of Israel but now he starts getting visions he starts seeing things and he does not like what he sees but I think it's very interesting if you had stopped here you would think that Amos could not stand these people he loved what was about to happen he couldn't wait for it But it's very interesting because he sees these visions, and he sees three. And in the first two visions, God is about to bring judgment on the people. In the first vision, he is going to send locusts to eat the grass of the land and to pretty much wipe them out. In the second vision, he's going to send fire to swallow them up. And both times, Amos says, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. So he cares for these people. All these things he's been saying, and you're going to tell me he cares for them? Yeah, because when you care for somebody, you're honest with them. If they're living in sin, you don't sit back and let them live in sin. You tell them the truth. And that's what Amos is doing. And even more interesting is God's response. It says, The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So because one person was faithful and called out to him, he withdrew his judgment. That's all Israel had to do in the first place. But we get to verse 7. This is the third vision. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, and I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So a plumb line in those days was when you were building a wall, whether it be for a house, a wall of a city, anything, you would tie a string that was hanging off of a platform at the top of the wall, maybe just a few inches. So it would be hanging straight down but not up against the wall. And if the wall was straight, it would be the the weight that was at the bottom of the string that was hanging down would be the same distance away from the wall as it was at the top where it was tied. If it was leaning out, then the weight would be up against the wall. If it was leaning in, it would be further away. And then you knew if the wall was straight the wall was not straight and you didn't fix it, eventually the wall would collapse. So that's what he says. He says, "Look, Isaac, I put a, or look, Amos, I'm sorry. put a plumb line there. The wall's going to fall. I can't hold back my judgment forever. They did this to themselves. I gave them opportunity after opportunity, and they continued to rebel against me and disobey me, and I cannot withhold my judgment forever because I am a just God. And so here, Amos doesn't even beg for mercy. He, he knows what's coming. He knows there's no other option. And then we get to verse 10, and in comes Amaziah. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah An- and said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. So he goes to the king and says, hey, this guy, he's talking junk about Israel. He's accusing you of stuff. He's saying we're all going into exile. You need to do something. And then he turns around and goes to Amos and is like, hey, people are not really happy with you, you know, so you might want to leave, go somewhere else. He's kind of a snake, you know. He, he's, he's kind of going behind Jeroboam and Amos' back. He's kind of playing the fence here. And then listen to what Amos says to Amaziah. Verse 16, Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die in an unclean land. And oh yeah, Israel shall surely go into exile. So Amaziah, because you did all that, You're going to die in an unclean land. Your wife's going to be a prostitute. Your land will be divided up amongst a bunch of people. Uh, Your children will die by the sword. And Israel's still going into exile. And so we see here that even the high priest is guilty of doing the same thing as everybody else. He's just as guilty. He's going to face the same punishment. Chapter 8, we're actually... This is something you need to read on your own. It's very vivid, the imagery here. But he talks about, my heading for it, is the coming day of bitter mourning. And that's mourning as in crying and calling out. Because what he sees is the destruction of Israel. He sees dead bodies. He sees people that will not even speak the name of the Lord because they're so frightened over what has happened. And he's pretty terrified by this. He doesn't want this to happen. He cares about Israel, but he knows it has to happen. And it's coming the same thing in chapter 9, the first uh, 10 verses here. He's pretty much saying the same thing. He's talking about how God is disgusted by their false sacrifices, their false offerings. They're doing all this stuff the way that they're supposed to, but their heart's not in it. And so God rejects it all, and he's not going to spare them just because they do those things. But verses 11 through 15 are my favorite part of the whole book because I want you to see the character of God in this and watch how amazing this is. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So what we see here, and it, it's kind of the twist on what we've been saying in our series, the no matter what here doesn't have to do with Amos. It has to do with God, because no matter what, God is faithful to his people. They will still face judgment, and they did. He prophesied this somewhere around 750, 745 B.C. Israel fell in 722. They were taken into exile. But he says that one day he will restore them. He will not lose his covenant with them. Through everything that they've done, he loves them, and he does not put them under judgment, under vengeance or wrath. He does it because he wants them to repent and turn back When we face judgment in our lives, and we will because we're sinful, we need to remember God is not doing that because he hates us. If we are his children, it's the opposite. He loves us, and he's doing that like the way a loving father puts their child under punishment and under judgment because they want them to turn from what they were doing wrong and do right. Because he loves us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for the picture that Amos paints for us, the picture overall of love, that even through judgment, even through the things that we do, even through the countless times we disobey you, we turn away from you, we seek other things besides you, you will never turn away from us. You will never be unfaithful to us. We are always your children, and you love us. And, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to remember that as we go throughout our lives, we finish out this week. Lord, help us to learn to love you more and to see even the things that we go through as a blessing from you, as a form of discipline and not of wrathful anger. And we pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.